we are done with the tabernacle. I know some of you guys are going to miss reading through blueprints about buildings and designs. I hope you've enjoyed all the the cool symbolism and pictures that have been embedded in there, teaching us about what God desires of us. But today we are going to start a new section. Uh, and it's, it's just funny how God kind of puts things on people's hearts. This morning I was talking with somebody in the lobby about clothing and about who in our life gets to pick out the clothing that we get to wear on a regular basis. Some of you know, uh, maybe that's not necessarily your own decision. You have Uh, People in your lives that tell you what probably looks good and what probably doesn't look good. Um, Today we are going to be talking a little bit about clothing. And if you've ever wondered why why would God care about the clothing especially his priests would wear, uh, this is where we are going in chapter 28 this morning. God has this beautiful design for what his priests were to wear. And so, guys, as we are moving into chapter 28 today, this week and next week, now we're talking about the priests, okay? And it's, it's really, I want to encourage you, it is really cool. Because all throughout these chapters, right, we've been seeing about what God wants out of his people, right? And, and he's kind of been moving from the inside out. So if you remember a couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 25, God was talking about, like, himself and his people, Then chapter 26, it was like how God's people related to one another. Last week, we were going through chapter 27, and we said, this is God kind of showing his people what does it look like to live in a world that doesn't know God, right? What does he want his people to do when the world around them has no clue who God is? 28 is going to build on this today because we get to see the priests, And God says, the past couple weeks we've been talking about this tabernacle, this building that was going to teach people about me. Now I'm going to move a little bit closer and we're going to talk about the people that I'm going to set apart for the purpose of making sure the world knows who I am. And church, some of you guys are familiar with 1 Peter 2.9 that says, uh, Peter identifies the Christ followers as a royal priesthood. He's talking about this. Right? The, the language in scripture of you and I as priests, this right here is the foundation for what the priests were supposed to do. Who were the priests? And I love that as we're reading through this today, God talks about clothing. And you go, oh, God, I mean, can't you just make it a little bit more easier? Why, when you're talking about what the priests do, you start with the clothes that they wear? Church, again... Just like every week, it is amazing how intentional God is. And why we're going through Exodus, just for me to remind you, look, when we get to the New Testament and we get all these descriptions about who the people of God are and what they were supposed to do, what they were not supposed to do, all of this builds right here, okay? That I've referenced Hebrews a couple times to say how Jesus references this and then points this forward, but guys... We do not understand the New Testament right unless we get some of this foundation that all of this is built off of. So the foundation for what the priests wore, it starts with the clothes. And it's going to be kind of funky that we're going to be reading details about clothes. But here's where we're going with this this morning, guys. Two things that God calls us to do as his priests. Fundamental. Fundamental to who you and I are as followers of Christ. God calls us to represent his presence before his creation. And he calls us to intercede 
on behalf of his creation. Now, that, that word intercede is a, is a church word for sure. It's not one that you've probably heard outside the church. It simply means just to, like, go on somebody's behalf. Right. So what we're going to see as we talk about what the priests were going to wear and what they looked like, that what God is trying to do is he's establishing this is who I want my people to be. He says they're going to be people who show the world who I am, and they're going to be people who stand before the world before me and beg and plead for my blessing, my righteousness, my life to be on the world for them. doesn't matter if they know me or not, we're going to be interceding on their behalf. So chapter 27, I realize we did not cover the last two verses last week. Sometimes that's intentional. Uh, so we're going to begin there, read through chapter 28, and uh, just try to picture in your head how beautiful these clothes are going to be. Uh, but also, they're going to sound a little odd too, okay? Beautiful and odd. Here we go. Chapter 27, verse 20, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadav and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash." They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and for his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. Now, that is a phrase you're going to hear a lot, okay? So just be ready. Gold, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen. Verse 6. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twine linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it. What's it going to look like? Of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. And you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. Okay, so we've got the ephod, blue, scarlet, purple, gold, fine twine linen, got these two big stones sitting on the shoulder. If you've ever played laser tag, you think about those vests that have the big targets on them that you're supposed to aim at. This is, this is not a far off image from what we're seeing here. That's the ephod. Now the breast piece, verse 15. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make of it, of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. 
You shall set in it four rows of stones. So he's going to describe what's going over the chest area right here. Four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle in the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the tribes of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. So on the front, you've got all these these individual and unique precious jewels. Now, I'll be totally honest with you. I, I probably have never seen and can't even picture half over half of what these diamonds looked like, okay? But if you can imagine, each one was going to have their own distinct color. Each one would have been rare. You're out in the desert, and each one was beautiful, and it was engraved with the names of the 12 tribes. So picking back up in 22, you shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of the gold in two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree and so attach it to the front shoulder, to the in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron is, is just being told this big display of all the jewels is going to be very firmly attached to the chest, right? There's not going to be pickpockets walking up and just taking them. It's going to be attached to the priest very strongly. 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. So all these stones are going to be right roughly where Aaron's heart is. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod of all blue. So this time, not of scarlet and purple and gold, and just of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. And on its hem you shall make, this is fun, pomegranates, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with gold bells between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and the sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. The pomegranates and the bells were a big deal. We'll get to that. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. It'll say, Holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Okay, almost done here. Verse 39. You shall weave the coat in checkerwork of fine linen. And you shall make a turban of fine linen. And you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. 
For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. So now God says, everything you made for Aaron, you make replicas of this for his sons. You shall make them for glory and for beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Father, it is, uh, we are again humbled uh, and a little confused as we come before you this morning. God, may we be able to understand just what were you after. Lord, it's not an accident that when you are laying the foundation that, that things that Jesus would say, things that the apostles would say would all point back to this idea of us being your priests, God. And the very first thing you are teaching us about being a priest is what we are to wear. Father, may we be able to understand your heart behind this. And, and as we start to see your heart, Lord, may, our, may the Holy Spirit within us show us what we need to do with this and how we need to respond to this. This is your holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys, all this clothing, what does this mean? And the two things we're going to talk about today, God gives his priesthood. He calls his priesthood. Firstly, to represent his presence before his creation, okay? That what God is doing and giving all these instructions for clothing is he's actually teaching you and me what he wants us to do is to represent who he is before his creation, okay? We see this in a couple different places. If you look at uh, verses 20 and 21 in chapter 27, God calls Israel to make oil to bring the to the priests uh, so that they could keep a lamp burning at all times in the tabernacle. I, I want to encourage you guys as we walk through the text, it's good to ask the question, why? Right? Why does God want this lamp to be burning? Why, why does Israel have to bring this oil? If you guys remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how light in the Old Testament was usually something God would, would use to remind the people of his, his life and his presence. So when God is telling Israel, keep the light burning at all times, that's supposed to be always reminding Israel, hey, God is with you. And the fact that this lamp is never going out means God is always with you. But those of you, uh, you don't have to raise your hands, but if you have ever lit something on fire before, uh, intentionally or unintentionally, you know it, it, fires take a lot of work. Right? It takes a lot of work to put a fire out. It also takes a lot of work to keep a fire going. So God specifically tells the priests, it's going to be your job, you priests, your job to make sure that the fire is always going to be burning. It is your job, priests, to make sure that the reminder of who God is, that he's with his people, with his creation, you guys forever, for eternity, this is your job. And I love, guys, I don't even know if, if you, you pick up on this when you read through it, but we're even told in verse 21, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. Where else in creation, if you've, if you've read through scripture, where else do you hear the phrase from evening to morning? And it was evening and it was morning. We did something evening, then morning, the creation account. 
right? And at the end of everything, it says God does this, and it was evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. God is telling Moses, telling Israel, when they hear this language, they're going, oh, so this is, this is core. This is foundational. This is God saying, what I really want you to do, my priesthood, one of the fundamental things you are to do, be the light before the world at all times, all times. Okay, then you move into 28, and we start to get into all these, these clothing uh, instructions. And I think, guys, we should, we should ask ourselves this question. Remember, Israel is out in the middle of a desert, okay? Very hot, very dry. Why on earth would God be making his priests? Uh, this stuff is beautiful, yes, but you're going to look funky if you're standing out in the desert wearing all this jewelry, all this very brightly colored clothing, this, you're going to stand out, right? You also, you're going to get pretty hot, right? Like this is not going to be comfortable for somebody to walk around in this many layers of clothing with all this jewelry, all these gems attached to them. It's going to be hot. You're going to stand out. Why is God telling us this? And in reality, guys, it, it's really not too hard to see. God wants his people to stand out. He says, look, there's not going to be anybody else in the world that is wearing all this gold, all this scarlet, all this purple, all this blue, all this fine twine linen. He says, I'm going to literally dress you so that you stand out from the rest of the world. That whenever the, the world, if they're looking at the desert, they're going to be able to spot, first off, they'll spot the tabernacle, right? Because that tabernacle was huge and it was very brightly colored. So they're going to be able to see Israel a mile away. And as the world comes to know Israel, they're going to see the people are also standing out. And I love, in the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself was made, guys, if you remember, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. The veil, chapter 26, was made a, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And fine twine linen. Chapter 27, for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long. So the, the door, the door of the tabernacle, what was it made of? What do you guys think? Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, right? God was dressing his people to look like the tabernacle, specifically to look like the door. The door of the tabernacle, Okay. We talked about how the tabernacle was meant to house the presence of God. The door was the way that people understood this is how I'm actually supposed to come to know God, to get to be made right with him. Now God is going to dress his people to look like the place that his presence dwells and to look like the way that they actually come in. God is fundamentally showing his priests, you are to remind the world of who I am and of what it takes to come and be right with me. So cool. I, I, I made a little joke with that phrase earlier to get you guys to pick up on how many times it says gold, silver, fine twine linen, scarlet, purple, all this, because God is being very intentional. He says, I'm going to make you look like the reminder that I'm giving you. I want my world to know who I am, and I want them to know how to come be right with me. And I love at the very end, at the beginning and at the end, excuse me, in chapter 28, verses 2 and 40, God calls the priestly garments to be made for glory and beauty. 
Right, the, the Hebrew words there, often in the Old Testament, they referred to God's glory and God's majesty. The priests were literally to look like God's glory and God's majesty. This is you and I, church, that when you and I become followers of Christ, this is what he desires of us, that we represent God's glory, God's majesty to the world. And even at the end, I, I, it's my favorite that he gets really detailed in this, these little pomegranates and these little bells going around the hem of the robe. Now that, that would be awesome to have a long robe that just has little pomegranates and bells on the bottom. Why pomegranates and bells? Part of it was because Aaron, when he went into the temple, nobody else could go in with him. So when they heard the bells, that would mean, okay, Aaron is still up and moving around. If you don't hear the bells anymore, it's safe to assume Aaron's not moving around anymore, meaning that the Lord found something wrong with the offering, and Aaron, as we see, he bore the judgment of the people before the Lord. Aaron became the sacrifice himself. Now, to, to our knowledge in the Old Testament, that didn't happen. But God's giving the people a physical reminder of saying, hey, when you hear this sound, you will know that I am with you. And he dresses the priest in it. Just another way God is saying, look, the way that I want you guys to look as my priests, you are going to represent all of who I am to the world. Okay? And we see the same thing kind of played out with Jesus in the New Testament, right? That Jesus' disciples are like, but God, Jesus, why do you have to leave? Like, you are, you are right here, Jesus, doing all these miracles, doing all these teachings. Like, surely you should be able to stay here with us and tell the world who God is, right? And Jesus says, it is better for you that I go. And I think sometimes, church, we live like the disciples. We say, God, if you could send yourself in human form, like why can't you set somebody up on earth to be the one that we could all look to to say, oh, that's what God looks like. God says, it is better for my creation that I make you the one to know me. And, and church, you know, I, I would think about the people in my life who have ever pointed me to God. It, very rarely was it somebody far off from me, right? Most of the time, it's people right around me that I know that when I look at them, I go, that's what it looks like to be loving. That's what it looks like to be kind. That's what it looks like to serve sacrificially. It's, it's not from somebody on a platform. It's from the people that God puts around me. And I realize, well, that is what God is doing with the priesthood. He is saying, I want you to show the world who I am because the world is going to listen to you more than it will from somebody on a platform or on a stage. And this is just one half. Okay, God wants us to represent who he is to his creation. He also wants us to intercede on behalf of his creation. Okay, I know intercede is, is a, a churchy word. I use it, guys, because it's one that shows up in scripture a lot. But it really just means you are going to advocate for somebody else before something. Okay, it's, it's, honestly, it's similar to what a lawyer is doing. Somebody cannot, well, they can choose, I guess, Joel, to represent themselves in court, but most people need somebody who knows, who knows the law that the judge is upholding 
and knows the situation that you, the, the accused or the defender, is going through. Somebody has to know both sides well and advocate for you on your behalf. That is a picture of interceding. And God calls his priests to do this. He calls you and I to stand before God and say, God, I know who you are and I know what you look like. And I know my, my world over here, it's, it's broken. God, I understand this. And, and, and he calls us to bring the world into God's presence, to bring God to his world, to intercede on behalf. Okay? We get this a couple different, different places in this text. If you notice, God calls uh, them to engrave the names of Israel on the stones. And you're thinking, why, what's the big deal that, that Aaron is wearing the names of Israel on the stones? Wearing the names is a picture of interceding. So when you go before somebody and say, look, I represent this person. And, and I want you to know, I know them and I know where they're going through. So that would be us on behalf of the world before God. And it's also the other way. It's us going to the world and saying, look, you were made to be with this God. Now, you, you might not know this God, but I know this God. Here's, here's who he is. To wear the names, to bring them to remembrance before the Lord. This is a picture of God's calling to his priests to intercede. Okay, I love the phrase in verse 36 through 38 when he's talking about this little plate that goes on Aaron's head. The plate literally says, holy to the Lord. And that Aaron, on that plate, would bear the guilt of the holy things that the people of Israel would consecrate as their holy gifts. 38, if somebody is going to bear the guilt of something, interceding. This is what Jesus has done for us, right? His death on the cross. He took the punishment that you and I bear for our sin because Jesus stood before God and said, God, I know these people, right? They are broken from you. They don't fully know who you are, but they know me. And because they know me and they believe that you have sent me, they believe who I am, God, they're with me. Spare them. And he turns around and he looks at us and says, Now you, you who are broken and far off from God, this is who God is. This is who he is like. This is what he loves. This is what he pursues. This is what he desires of you. If you're going to believe me, you're going to take this life on as yourself. This, this is what Christ has done. And he can put on us this plate, holy to the Lord. He bears the guilt that we have. And repeated a couple times throughout, if you guys heard this, this word signet, okay? I, I just love to point out the funky words in English because sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, when we read this, there's words in there that we just don't really use anymore in English today. A signet, a signet was a token. It's just something that a, a ruler would have that signified their authority, okay? Usually it was a ring. Right? There's pictures, I think Joseph in his story at some point, the Pharaoh gives him his signet ring. And when you, have, when you have that token, that signet, it is a sign that you have the power and the authority and the representation of whoever gave that to you. So God says, priests, you are going to wear these names like a signet. You are going to carry my favor, my blessing, my authority to my creation, right? God says, I, I'm not just going to stand back and throw things at them. I'm going to send you to give this to them. And guys, it is, it is so amazing to me that this is what Jesus has done 
Okay, I, I cannot get over the fact that all of this that, that God has called the priesthood to do and that it feels overwhelming for me to take on, God has set this on his son. We've been talking through Hebrews. You may or may not hear a little bit more about Hebrews later on. But God shows Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus Christ is the radiance and the power of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his power. He says Jesus is like the signet ring. Jesus carries with him the authority of God. He shows who God is. Chapter 4, 14 and 16. Jesus Christ is the great high priest. So he's kind of standing in this, this Aaron role here who has passed through the heavens, in whom we can hold fast our confession so that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our great high priest who has done this for us. And what does it mean further for us? Chapter 5, 9 through 10. Christ being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest, God says, I have made Jesus to be the one to make all my reconciliation, all my restoration in this world possible. Chapter 7, 24 through 25, Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus does this at all times. For you and for me. Christ entered not only into the heavenly places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Again, Christ representing God to us. Christ interceding on our behalf to God. Okay, Those are like five or six examples. The entire book of Hebrews is basically saying, hey, remember Exodus? Jesus did that. Jesus is, fulfills the law, the tabernacle, the priesthood. And guys, when, when we think about Jesus as our priest, that Jesus has represented God's presence before us, and he's interceded on our behalf, Jesus is the one who makes us right with God. But we don't really appreciate the fact that that's what Jesus has done, unless you realize God has been after somebody to do that for his creation throughout all of history. From the second you and I were broken apart from God in sin, God has been trying to say, somebody, somebody represent me to my people. Somebody stand on their behalf because I can, they are not right with me and I want them to be right with me. God, God sends the priests. He sends later the prophets. He sets up his own son to do this. And then church, Christ passes the role onto those who are filled with his Holy Spirit. And where I get this from church, it is, it is amazing. I don't know if you picked up on this. Sometimes we just read over details. But all of this that was being done to Aaron was also to be done to his sons. That what God is doing is he's saying, this is what my high priest is going to do, but his whole family is going to carry on the work. You and I, as part of this royal priesthood, as followers of Christ, guys, our world is hurting. 
I mean, I don't even need to go into details for us to know how badly we need our God. Okay? And we know that deeply personally ourselves. Okay? You don't even have to look at other people's lives. You can feel within yourself. There are just times where something is not right. How badly we need God. And God says, look, I have made you right with me through Jesus, but I have given to you, church, given to you, follower of Christ, I have given you the work of reminding the world of who God is, of, of showing them who God is, but also, but also going before its behalf before me. Of saying, world, I know you don't know who God is, but because I love you and because I care for you, I'm going to show you who God is. God, I know that there are parts of our world that don't look like you, but God, I ask you to continue your grace, continue your forgiveness, continue your work of reconciliation that you did in my life, continue it over here. This is what God's priests are called to do. And churches, we start to kind of narrow down, think about application this morning. I, I just want to leave two things before you, okay? The first is that we cannot, we cannot as the church separate representing from interceding, okay? We cannot split these two things apart. And, and my, my fear is that we tend to do one or the other. We rarely do both together. Okay? Some of us tend to intercede without representing. Okay? We, we tend to, to try to stand in behalf of people saying, like, God, I know they don't know you, uh, but just, like, go forgive them and take care of things. And we, we are good at telling people, look, you don't know who God is, but we don't ever show them who God is. We don't ever spend time with them. We don't ever get into the lives of people who don't know God so that they actually see God. We are very content to let something bigger than us tell others what it is to follow God. And the whole narrative God has been building to, he says, no, I even took my son out of the world so that I could put my spirit within you so that you, you would be the best proof of who I am, church. This is where we were at last week. God says, I have made you to be ambassadors for Christ. Paul says, I plead with you, please be right to God, because when you're right with God, then the world actually knows who God is. We cannot separate interceding from representing. We also can't separate representing without interceding. Some, some of us, our, our default is just to try to make our lives, make our world look more like God but we never actually go on the behalf of somebody who doesn't know God before the Father. We're very good at making our righteousness look great. We're, making, we're good at making our land look like him, but we never go to people in their brokenness and say, look, I want to introduce you to this God who you were made in his image. We fundamentally cannot separate the two. And the reality is, church, if God has called his priests to do these two things together, then to try to do one without the other is not to do either of them. You cannot separate this. And so what this looks like, church, for you and for me, what do we do to hold representing and interceding together discipleship? I mean, I don't have a more detailed answer because this is what God says. He says, look, this is what my high priest does, but his sons are also going to do it. When you look at the life of Jesus and how he came and he represented the life of God before his world, but he went on their behalf before God to say, I want you to be right with God. God, I want these people who don't know you to be made right with you. 
Just as Aaron was to, so were the priests. Just as Christ is to, so are those who bear his name. And church, I, 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 really, I really wrestled with how to... This, this is the point of the sermon where I think about landing the plane. I really struggled about how to land the plane this week. I think I told several of you guys, this is like the fifth draft of application, okay? Um, there's, there's a lot of different things we could talk about as far as discipleship. We could get into the weeds of what it looks like. But, okay, here's, here's where I'm feeling led this morning, okay? It is, it's one of the biggest things that grieves me as a pastor when you see, when you see competing narratives that try to tell you that to, to follow Christ, to be the church, is something other than this, okay? Look, I, I can talk about discipleship and what it looks like all I want to. But if there is a narrative in your heart or a narrative in your mind that says, okay, I'm supposed to make disciples, but I also need to do this. I'm supposed to follow you, Jesus, but there's, there's something else. I mean, if you want to think about it this way, I'd say, look at the phrase, being a Christian means blank. Or if I don't do blank, then I'm not a good Christian. If there's something that goes in the blank other than this discipleship right here, there is another narrative in your heart. There's something else in there that's saying, that's good, but you need something else. If you remember, when we looked through Colossians, Paul called that out. He said, that's not of God. You can't have that. Church, if there is, and again, this is where as a pastor, I'm not going to go into specifics because I do trust that the, the, the Holy Spirit of God hears and sees each one of you this morning. He knows where you're at. He knows how you would fill in the blank, okay, even better than I do. But if there is something else in that blank, at some point you and I will sacrifice the call to be disciples for something else. Because discipleship is not comfortable. Discipleship is not popular. Discipleship often keeps us in unfamiliar places. Not even bad, just like we've never experienced this before. But if there is another narrative about who it is to be the people of God and what the people of God are to be doing, we will not live as God's priests. Because at some point, you will hit your tipping point where to be a disciple is too unfamiliar or too uncomfortable and something else is going to kick in. And I guarantee you that something else is going to feel a lot easier and so it's just going to kind of get lumped up in there with discipleship. Okay? A picture of what this would look like is if I started telling my kids, here's what it is to be a secret. Okay? You're going to love God. You're going to love your family. You're going to serve one another. And you're going to work in public transportation. Okay? Now, I, some of you know I work for Blacksburg Transit. I teach people how to drive the bus. My dad works in the federal government for the Department of Transportation, has his entire, well, since he graduated from college, he's been there. My grandfather on my mom's side has worked in the DOT. My great-grandfather worked with, not in, but with the Department of Transportation. Okay? This is like a fourth generation of, of good, godly people working in public transportation in the government. Now, it, it is a part of, a part of what I do. It's a, it's a very little special place in my life. But the second 
I start, you think about what's going to be easier, right? For me to love God, for me to serve others, or for me to go drive a bus. Like of those three, which do you think is going to be the most easiest for me to do? Some of you, it might be a little bit wild that driving a bus would be that easy. If you'd like to come work, then I'll make sure you know it's that easy. But, but truthfully, driving a bus would be the easiest of the three. And, and I will tell you, I cannot, I cannot count up the moments where there's something really hard going on. And my instinct is, I just need to go drive a bus. Right? Like, like there's, there's something else within me that tells me who I am, that if I just went and did that, that would make things better. That would make things easier. That would make things more comfortable for me in this situation where I am as a Christian. And I worry that if I ever spoke that way in front of my kids, if they ever didn't like public transportation which thankfully they love the bus, but if they didn't, they could be bitter that I keep telling them that's what it is to be a secret. Like, we love God, we serve others, and we, we love buses. If they don't love buses, they go, well, then maybe I can't be a secret. Or if they have a bad experience with the bus, maybe they say, I don't, even, I don't even want that, I don't even want to be a secret. Church, if there are other narratives in our testimony we're going to not lead people towards Christ. And some of you, that may be your testimony this morning. Some of you may be sitting here going, you know, I, I, like, I've known Jesus or I've, I've thought about Jesus, but man, you know, I saw this, this person that claimed to be a Christian telling me I also need to do these things. Or I saw this person claiming to be a Christian just living in this way, and I couldn't get past that. So I don't want to have anything to do with Christ. There, there may be some of you in that place, okay? And, and my fear as a pastor is that we get so busy, caught up in all these things that are good and that are right and that are maybe even proper for us to go after. But when we get busy, church, it's, it's just a psychological thing. Our brains cannot keep up. So we just start to assume, well... Okay, of all the things going on, this one's probably not that big of a deal. Right? Is, is driving a bus really that, that big of a deal? Is it that bad of a thing to want to do that? No. But the second I have equated that with being a secret, I have now introduced something other than the narrative of what it is to be a secret to my kids' lives. Church, may we not, may we not do that with Christ. If this is who God desires us to be as his priests, people who represent him, people who are going to be interceding for the brokenhearted, for the downtrodden, for those who are angry at God, for those who don't know God, for those who don't want God, if we are not interceding on their behalf, if we are not representing, there is something else within us telling us this is what it is to be a Christian. And so church, what I want us to do is just take a few moments um, I'll, we'll put some, I'll put some music on. We're going to take four minutes, okay? For those of you who are like, when Jordan says minutes, how long is this going to take? I'm going to watch the clock. We'll take four minutes for us to be silent and for us to just ask the Holy Spirit, God, like, I, don't, I don't even know what all I have put in my heart other than discipleship. God, could you just show me 
that, that I get really angry, I get really bitter, I get really hung up on this thing, and God, I really don't even know if that, if that is of you or not. And church, I, I beg you, let's, we'll take this time seriously because, look, if we are growing together under a vision of discipleship, we can't, we cannot have something else in there telling us, well, that's good, but really you should also be doing this. And so two prompts I want to leave you guys to just get you started as you're praying and as I'm praying with you. The first prompt, I think it's on the next slide, John. What are the competing narratives that you've heard throughout your life about what it means to follow Christ? Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying you have to be the one to evaluate today whether they're all truthful or not. I just need us to think what are the things we have been told that we have to do in order to follow Christ, okay? I'm not trying to say everything you've been told is wrong. I just want us to be open before the Lord this morning. And the second one, fill in the blank. Being a Christian means blank. Or you could word it, if I don't do blank, then I'm not a good Christian, okay? Fill in those blanks before God. Let his Holy Spirit affirm you and say, yes. You know what? Like, you've heard this. That's good. Killing to that. But may we also give the Holy Spirit to say, you know, I wouldn't put that there, Okay? If we, I know if I said, let's just go do this throughout the week, most of us honestly are a little too busy, okay? So we're going to take four minutes. I'm watching the clock. And as we do this, church, I encourage you, we'll be silent and we'll be in prayer. Four minutes is going to feel like a, a long time, but just know somebody's actually watching to see when four minutes are up, okay? But may we take a moment to pray. When we come back, I'll, I'll close us in prayer and we'll continue in worship.
O Lord of grace, I have been hasty and short in private prayer. O quicken my conscience to feel this folly, to bewail this ingratitude. My first sin of the day leads into others, and it is just that thou should withdraw thy presence from the one who waited carelessly on thee. Keep me at all times from robbing thee and from depriving my soul of thy due worship. Let me never forget that I have an eternal duty to love, to honor, and to obey thee, that thou art infinitely worthy of such, that if I fail to glorify thee, I am guilty of an infinite evil that merits infinite punishment, for sin is the violation of an infinite obligation. Oh, forgive me if I have dishonored thee. Melt my heart, heal my backslidings, and open an intercourse of love. When the fire of thy compassion warms my inward man, and the outpourings of thy spirit fill my soul, then I feelingly wonder at my own depravity and deeply abhor myself. Then thy grace is a powerful incentive to repentance and an irresistible motive to inward holiness. May I never forget that thou hast my heart in thy hands. Apply it to the merits of Christ's atoning blood whenever I sin. Let thy mercies draw to me to thyself. Weed me from all evil. Mortify me to the world. Make me ready for my departure, hence animated by the humiliation of penitential love. My soul is often a chariot without wheels, clogged and hindered in sin's miry clay. Mount it on eagle's wings and cause it to soar upward to thyself. Amen.